Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to today's History Hack, which just feels frankly bizarre um, because I'm joined by none other than some bloke called Dr. Zach White, fresh from his debut at Chalk Valley History uh, History Festival. Whoop, whoop, yeah. Whoop, whoop. Yeah, that's why we're here. I saw the size of the crowd you had, bro. There were some people who turned up. It was more than three. I was quite pleased. Mate, there was nearly 100 sitting there watching you. I've counted them. Boney sent me a photo. (laughs) Only you would sit there and count them just for the vindication. Well, I it was long, long hours on the road on that Scotland road trip. And obviously I was sad that I wasn't there for my bro. Um, so, yeah, I sat there and counted them and, and yeah, screw you. OK, <laughs> next time I won't bother. <laughs> right. Next time I'll just tell everyone, yeah, there were three. He was shit. Right. OK. So Sounds about we, right. We thought we'd never actually done a guide to the Peninsula Wars. And this is what you've just got up and talked about, Chalk Valley. So it makes sense. It kind of does. It kind of Do does. Me, you want me to give you a kind of serious, semi-serious introduction? What on history hack? <laughs> okay, right. we don't do Rockstar serious. Star of Napoleonic history, um, but not the most popular Napoleonic Twitterer in the world. Uh, country and oh no, I said you were more likely to be a country and western star of Napoleonic history because that's less drugs and more singing about your mama. Uh, and more Czech shirts. Don't forget the Czech shirts. Yeah, you do rock the Czech shirts. Uh, obviously, co-host on History Hack, uh, and and basically the the guy that does all of the planning and all of that crap because I don't want no part of that. Chair of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves Charity. Uh, he's all over the place. You can't get rid of him. Right. Okay. Welcome to your own podcast. Cheers, mate. Nice to be here. <laughs> right. Okay. So. This is basically all of the sharp stuff, isn't it? It is. It's all that stuff that everybody's read in Bernard Cornwall and therefore they think they know. But the trouble is that they don't really know it because even Bernard Cornwall says, look, sometimes I just make shit up because it's a a story. So fiction, people. Right. Okay. let's cover the basics. 
how do we get here? I'm guessing you're going to start by telling me it was all some short, not really short, French bloke's fault. See, instantly, I'm impressed you actually learned something from that Waterloo filming trip. I learned he's taller than me, which is disappointing. You did sulk a little bit when I told you that. You were not happy. Yeah, it it is Napoleon's fault. This one, I know I don't like Napoleon particularly. Um, Spoiler alert if you've missed that one already. But yeah, this, this one is on Napoleon. You can't pin this one anywhere else. And this is why I have such a beef with Napoleon and his style because this is how I got into the period. And then once you've started looking at this, and we're going to use a technical history hack term here, the shithousery that goes down in the early stages. Um, We should trademark that. We really should. We should stick it on mugs and sell it. Um, Once you've seen that level of shithousery, you can't really go back. So yeah, this is Napoleon's fault. The Peninsula War starts properly for the British and for the Spanish in 1808. But to get it... We need to go back to 1807 and the Treaty of Tilsit. There's this big, a lot of the fighting actually happens in Central Europe during the Napoleonic Wars, not in Spain and Portugal. And that's going to be a kind of a theme running through this one. But there's a series of campaigns that Napoleon uh, fights. Um, In 1805, he beats uh, the Austrians and the Russians at Austerlitz. In 1806, he gives the Prussians a monumental kicking between the legs at the battles of Jena and Auerstadt. And then he beats the Russians again at Friedland. Um, And that result is that the Russians turn around and go, look, enough's enough. We need to sue for peace. So Napoleon and the Tsar of Russia, Alexander I, have a a bit of a loving, like genuinely a little bit of a loving on a raft on the river of Tilsit. Um, And the, the upshot, Napoleon's absolutely convinced that um, he's basically wooed Tsar Alexander into doing exactly what he wants. There are some very cosy paintings that come out of it that have sort of a suggestion of hands in sort of slightly awkward places. It's it's slightly odd the kind of the the way in which Napoleon kind of looks at Alexander and goes, mm, "Yes." This sounds like um, the Napoleonic equivalent of the Paris Hilton tape. Yeah, the, some something along those lines. Um, but the, the net result is that. Napoleon's got peace in Europe, except that he hasn't quite. He's still got Britain to deal with because Britain, being an island, hasn't really been affected by Napoleon's land campaigns. So Napoleon has a quite clever solution. That whole thing about him calling us a nation of shopkeepers is sort of where he goes with it. He tries to starve Britain of trade. Quite clever, really, because if you bankrupt the British economy, then the British can't do that thing that they keep doing of bankrolling European armies to fight on their behalf because Britain doesn't have a big standing army for reasons that go all the way back to the English Civil War. So he basically tells every nation in Europe, you're going to close your ports to British trade. You're not going to trade with the British anymore. You're going to trade with France. You can trade with any other nation in Europe, just not the British. And the reaction of some European nations is, well, all right then. Others that aren't directly under Napoleon's control kind of turn around and go, Naff off, mate. That, that's, a, that's a paraphrase there, people, if you hadn't actually realised. That wasn't literally the response they got. But one of those nations that decides that, you know what, economic policies, our concern, and we're not going to go along with this, was Portugal. Portugal was an independent nation, had its own king, decided it wanted to do its own thing. Long-standing alliance with the British, had a significant British expat community. And so when a demand came from 
Napoleon that look, you're going to try, you're going to close your ports to British goods, and you're going to arrest the British citizens within your country. They went,、mm, yeah, we're really not. So Napoleon does the sort of classic bully boy tactic and goes, well, look, my army's bigger than yours, and effectively threatens them with invasion. And the Portuguese go,、mm, yeah, all right then, we'll do what you want. Napoleon, being Napoleon, decides, well, actually, I'm just going to invade you anyway. And that's exactly what he does. So, having sent this army through the country of his ally, which is Spain,、um, to the Portuguese border, he invades in 1807. The Portuguese army is really not a going concern. It's it's a bit of a joke with the best one in the world. I'm very sorry, our Portuguese listeners.、Um, there are probably like twelve of you, but I'm sorry. But in 1807, your army is not anything.、Um, Be fair, it's and, not the First World War either. But okay, burn from mostly burn full from Churchill. Mostly full of soldiers going. Why are we here? <laughs> Things get better for the Portuguese, though. We'll get to that.、Um, so that's the Portuguese story. Eighteen o seven, taken over by the French.、Um, end of that. That that's not a a problem really for the French. But then we get to Spain. Now Spain's a bit of an interesting one. I'll try and be fair to Napoleon for a second here. So the first thing to say is that the Spanish are France's allies. They're also quite reluctant allies by this point. They're a bit bored of, particularly the hammering that they took at Trafalgar. They're not really seeing any benefit from this conflict. They're cut off from their colonies. There's unrest in those colonies, and in 1806, actually, they're seriously considering turning sides and, and joining the coalition. Because the 1806 campaign ends up being such a blistering success for Napoleon, everything's over before they even have the chance to consider that. So that never actually happens. But in 1808, it's quite a fractious country, and if you're a fan of Napoleon, the thing that you do at this point in time is blame everything on the Spanish. The Spanish were treacherous; they were a backward people.、Um, they weren't willing to get with the modern times that Napoleon represented. But that's not entirely true because there's unrest within Spain about exactly these issues of modernisation. You have a kind of a liberal left-wing movement that wants to move the country towards what, in 19th-century terms, is a more kind of modern outlook.、Um, and the heir to the throne, Ferdinand VII, is quite keen on that idea. The trouble is, his dad, who's the guy sitting on the throne, Charles IV. Isn't and so there's this kind of unrest going on within the country. Napoleon capitalizes on this. He basically says, "Look, this isn't good enough. We need to sort this out. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get you both to come to France. We're going to sit down and we're going to hug it out like adults, and we're going to work out a solution to this." Napoleon doesn't hug anything out. You got it in one. There's there's no hugging out. What he does is arrest them, and then tries to stick his own brother. On the throne of Spain, like I said, <laughs> get housery. He's such a douchebag. I love it. I love it. Right. Okay. So then we get the Dos de Mayo uprising. So why are you about to describe a guy called Murat as brainless? Oh, Murat,、um, or Marshal Murat, as we we should call him to do the fr- French. Let's just call him Muzzer and have done with it. Thing is that Murat's the kind of guy who. If he was in the age of social media, he would have been all over Instagram. Forget like Kim Kardashian and all that kind of stuff. It would all have been about Murat and his manly thighs 
he was such a poser. Well, going by his portraits, he was such a poser. He had the look. He was a cavalry commander. Um, he has a reputation for being, inverted commas, dashing in terms of his looks, um, but also dashing in terms of, hey, let's take the cavalry and go charge at that thing without really considering the position all that well. I'm oversimplifying just ever so slightly there, but Murat isn't known for his kind of careful consideration of the position of, you know, the, the military position. So he's not. We should get Josh of- Proven to pay him in the film of his, like in a biopic just for shits and giggles. The, there would be serious acting needed there from Josh <laughs> because Josh is like the complete opposite of Murat. <laughs> That's why it's funny. That's why it's funny. It is. It is. But he um, has the hair. He has the hair. He absolutely has the hair. Like the, the dark flowing locks that make everybody look at Murat and go, hmm, yes. Um, that's definitely a thing. He has a strong leg game, as I say, going on in his portraits. Um, I can just tell that instantly people have gone to Google to look at exactly what I'm talking about. But the trouble is Murat's not a diplomat. He's not one of these kind of careful people who considers his position and so he's not really the kind of person you want to send to deal with a country that's not particularly happy because the Spanish, unsurprisingly, hear about this idea that their royal family is under house arrest and go, no, we're not OK with that. And then you get the Dos de Mayo uprising, which, as the name suggests, take place on the 2nd of May, 1808. And it's basically a bit of a misunderstanding. There's a rumour that goes around that all of the remainder of the Spanish royal family have been herded up and they're being stuck in carriages and they're going to be taken to France where they'll also be placed under house arrest. And then Napoleon's brother is going to get stuck on the throne and, you know, the whole cronyism thing that they've seen in other nations in Europe, because this is Napoleon's playbook. He topples a monarchy, sticks his own family on the throne. They, the Spanish feel that this is what's going to happen in Spain. So there's a, a riot. And in the process, some French soldiers are killed. Now, like I said, Murat, not the sharpest tool in the shed. He decides to issue a decree saying that for every drop of French blood spilled, it will be repaid many times over. Ugh, sounds familiar. mm -hmm. And he's as good as his word. So what happens is the French basically clear the streets. Anybody that's found with a weapon in their possession, anyone found resisting the French is rounded up and then the following day, on the Tres de Mayo, a whole host of them are shot. If folks want to Google Francisco Goya's Dos de Mayo and Tres de Mayo paintings, they're really visceral representations of what this might have looked like. And you get a real sense of how bloody both events were. You know, the Spanish, at no point am I going to say the Spanish were angels in this. They were the victims, unquestionably, but they gave as good as they got. Um, the the bloodshed it, it was horrible. That's what I'm getting at here. Um, just do you know what I am looking. I've also looked at the thighs, which are very impressive. I um, knew you'd like the thighs, yeah, <laughs> but I feel like they're being overdone a bit. Um, but my E for GCSE Spanish has only just realised that Dos de Mayo means the second of May. This is disappointing. I know. <laughs> so I mean, it's completely horrific. Um, uh, one like let's just do what we do best, which is talk about the British. So let's go back uh, 
French have decided to punk us with our trade, clearly we're not going to be very happy. Um, so how have they been reacting whilst all this is going on? And when do we get to the point where we go like, no, nah, bugger this, we're going in? Well, the British aren't angels during this period either. Um, our strategy all the way through this conflict, or in fact, all the way through the, the, seven, sorry, the 18th century has been, if we go to war with the French, what we'll do is go and steal their sugar islands because the sugar islands in the Caribbean are really valuable. And then if the French haven't got the income from those, um, then they're going to struggle economically. And when it comes to the trade negotiations, we've got really valuable bargaining chips. So in some respects, this kind of economic warfare is us getting back what we've had done to what we've done to um, the French in the past. How have we been reacting? Well, bear in mind, we've been at war with revolutionary France almost consistently since 1792, apart from a period from 1801 um, to 1803, which is known as the Peace of Amiens, um, where Britain and France kind of subsist and try to coexist, but it doesn't really work because neither's really happy with the situation. And then war breaks out again. So the issue for the British is that we don't have a big standing army because of the antipathy towards big standing armies, we're much more focused on overseas possessions. So we've tried to kind of wage war by proxy. The trouble is, by 1807, there isn't anyone else to fight for us. Um, we do have an ongoing concern about um, the, the situation with the Navy and the French trying to rebuild their Navy post Trafalgar, which it's important to say the French do do in time. But we haven't really been able to take it to the French. We go and steal the Danes fleets. Really sorry, Nikolai, if you're listening, but we send a fleet and basically firebomb Copenhagen into acquiescence and say, yeah, we're going to um, look after your navy. Basically, we go and steal it from them. Um, and it's, it's pretty horrendous. We burn a huge chunk of Copenhagen in the process. Sorry about that. But yeah, there's not a lot we can do about, um, about Napoleon himself because we can't take the fight to him. Okay, so what do we do? Well, the Dostomayo uprising is basically kind of one of those things where you kick the embers of the fire out of the fire. This is it. it? They... This is a threshold. This is a all right. Uh, I've been observing from afar, and you're a knob, but now you've you've done it now. Well, I mean, we don't like the Spanish. That's an important thing to say. That we're we're not friends with the Spanish. Um, in fact, we have a fleet that's preparing to set sail um, to attack Spanish holdings in Mexico. I mean, in fairness, it's mutual, right? There's the whole Armada thing. Oh, yeah. No, 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 neither side loves the other. There's none of that going on. But this is a case of your enemy's enemy is your friend. That's exactly yep. what happens here. Um, and the Spanish nation just kind of goes nuts over this, uh, rises up as a whole against Napoleon. You have... Um, a, a crushing victory for the Spanish over a French army at the Battle of Balen. And this is effectively a case of an entire French army surrendering. Um, Dupont, who's in command, is accused by Napoleon of basically having surrendered in order to protect his baggage train. And the two things cause this electrifying shock in Britain, where we suddenly go, oh my God, the Spanish are amazing. Um, and we, we get um, envoys from Spain arriving in the UK saying, look, can we have some help? 
But it's interesting. The Spanish want their help in a very particular form. And that form is money and guns. They don't want an army. The trouble is, this is Britain and we love to stick our nose in where it's not wanted. So that force that I was just telling you about, that's about to head off to Mexico, it's under the command of a guy called Sir Arthur Wellesley, who we're going to go on to talk about um, in in a bit. Um, And rather than send that army to Mexico to fight the Spanish and create havoc for them, what we do instead is send it to Spain. So Wellesley arrives off the coast of Spain and the the Spanish go, yeah, thanks, mate, but on your bike, we don't want you. He's uh, off the coast of Carinha. He makes uh, contact with the locals and the, the locals down to jog on. Uh, so he goes down to Portugal, lands his force at Mondigo Bay in August and very quickly manages to, in effect, liberate Portugal. He wins two battles in quick succession at Relitha. And Vermeiro, Relief is more of a skirmish than a full-blown battle, but never mind. Um, and the point is that he basically manages to comprehensively defeat the French army that's in Portugal. The trouble is he's superseded at the moment that he's winning the Battle of Vermeiro. And his commanders turn around and go, yeah, we could push on against the French, but actually we're not going to. And they sit down at the negotiating table with uh, the French commander, Junot, and they agree something called the Convention of Cintra, which basically says the Royal Navy will evacuate the French troops from Portugal back to France and they can take all of their baggage with them. And their baggage, inverted commas, basically consists of every single thing they've stolen from the Portuguese people over the past year that they've been in the country, which unsurprisingly doesn't go down particularly well with either the Portuguese or the British government, because it's a seriously bad look. So Wellesley goes home, more takes over, and then we Brits pretend we did well while running away, which wouldn't be the first time, would it? It's not the first time, it's not the last. Um, okay, <laughs> <something>. anyone? <laughs> well, actually, that's where we're going with this. This ends up being, if you like, the Napoleonic Dunkirk. It doesn't entirely okay. work out, but it's pretty close. So, yeah, more takes over. So John Moore... He's senior to Wellesley because all of the people involved in the Convention of Cintra, Wellesley and his superiors, um, including Sir Hugh Dalrymple, have to go home to defend their reputations in the Cintra inquiry. Wellesley's the only one that comes out of that smelling of roses because he's the one who's turned around and said, well, no, we can push on. And his superiors have said, no, we're not doing that. And he's only signed it because he's been told to sign this convention. So Wellesley's busy defending his reputation and, making sure that he, you know, ends up having a career at the end of uh, that inquiry. So Moore sent out more. He has a reputation for being quite innovative. He's in charge of a lot of the training of the, the light infantry and the, everybody knows about the 95th rifles. Moore's heavily involved in all of that kind of light infantry doctrine that gets embedded in that and other units. It's not just the rifles that are involved in that. Moore's also got quite a humanitarian outlook. He's one of these people who doesn't believe in flogging. Um, until <laughs> he's out in Spain and realizes that when you're actually commanding these guys on in on on active campaign in the field, you have to resort to flogging. By this point, the the French have taken a bit of a hammering because of what happened at Bailen. Um, they've taken the hammering in Portugal, and so the French pull back to the River Ebro. Now, the River Ebro is in the north 
eastern corner of Spain. Moore's in Portugal, so he's got a long way to march. So he sets a rendezvous point in Salamanca and then splits his army. He sends the artillery down one road and the infantry down another, with the idea being, look, we'll all meet in the middle at Salamanca and then we'll march the River Ebro. Oh, come on, really? Really. Um, (laughs) Alex's face. (laughs) Alex's face right now. That's not one day at Staff College, and I know that's a stupid idea. Um, And, yeah, you're right. Although the the reason that it's perhaps not quite as dumb as it sounds is that Moore's concerned about the crap condition of roads in Portugal, and he thinks that if he sends the artillery down the same road as the infantry, they're never going to get there. The reality is they could absolutely have used those roads. Um, It's just crap intelligence. But it means that the artillery take forever to get to Salamanca. And so the British are sitting there wondering what the hell they're going to do with themselves when Napoleon comes south. Napoleon's seen the situation in Spain, seen as an absolute embarrassment for him personally, for the French, for their prestige. And so he comes south and launches this blistering campaign that basically annihilates all of the Spanish armies that are um, holding the the line on the River Ebro. The fact that Moore's made this balls up and has spent so long sitting at Salamanca is basically what saves the British from being involved in this shit show of an operation. Um, It again becomes a story of crap intelligence. The British think that they're well positioned to go and flank and attack one French force um, and then the order comes that actually, no, what you're going to do is you're going to drop everything and you're going to run. And you're going to run for Coruña, which is in the northwestern corner of Spain. Um, th- this order comes through on Christmas Eve, 24th of December. It starts to chuck it down with snow. They're retreating over the Galathean Mountains. People go Google them. You'll see how horrific they are to kind of traverse and bear in mind that we're not talking like modern roads we're talking dirt tracks in shoes that are falling apart in wool uniforms that are probably threadbare by this point it's it's horrific that whole retreat you've got stories of people going blind from fatigue the the food is inadequate it's running out the entire army pay chest just has to get thrown down a ravine because they can't afford to keep lugging it with them because it's taken too long to move it. Um, And then they get to Coruña um, around New Year and they find the boats haven't arrived. Coruña is a port. The idea that what they're doing is they're cutting and running to the coast to get the hell out of Dodge before these French armies swoop in and encircle them. And the boats aren't there. The, The orders have been sent. They're on their way. But what they have to do is stand and fight at the Battle of Coruña um, in very early January. Moore's killed in the moment of kind of victory at Coruña because the, the French attack trying to kind of keep pushing the British into the sea. They don't succeed. Moore um, is hit by a cannonball. It's a pretty horrific wound. He dies later that day. He's buried actually out in Coruña, uh, if folks are ever there. Um, I was going to say, how did him- get rid of this idiot? But... Um- well there you go exactly to be honest i think more would have faced an inquiry like sintra had he ever made it home but that that wasn't a concern um the troops come back and they're an absolute mess in fact there's so much of a mess that the locals 
when these guys land, don't want anything to do with them because they're dirty, they're smelly, they're emaciated. And the locals kind of look at them and go, oh no, I don't want you coming anywhere near me. You might give me whatever unpleasant kind of poor people germs you're carrying. And it's actually down to the Navy to take these people under their wing and kind of give them a bit of food, give them a change of clothing and help them kind of get themselves together to then march off back to barracks. So it's a pretty piss poor start to the Peninsula War for the British. So enter again. He comes back um, because he's the only one who's managed to do the job pretty well. He lands in um, pretty pretty inauspicious conditions. So by this point, he, he lands in May 1809. Um, sorry, no, he lands in April, late April uh, 1809. By this point, the French have are in the process of kind of cementing their control on Spain itself. That's a long process because those armies um, that were beaten have either managed to regroup and they're trying to hold their own, but they're pretty isolated, or the deserters from them have run off and formed guerrilla bands, which are basically enjoying the opportunity to kick people's heads in. Lots of people think about the guerrillas as um, these patriotic, hugely devoted people who wage this bloody war against the French. The term guerrilla is from the Spanish guerilla, which means little war. Um, And they're involved in all kinds of ambushes and reprisals. But really what they're doing is, in some cases, taking the fight to the French. In other cases, they're just robbing anyone because they want money and food and an opportunity to hurt someone. Um, So that's what's going on in Spain. In Portugal, where Wellesley lands again, the French are starting to reinvade. Um, Within a month of landing, Wellesley liberates Portugal for the second time. And there's a bit of a pattern that's starting to emerge here. You send Wellesley in, sometimes, well, quite rapidly, some stuff happens, which is why he's kind of very rapidly kind of gains this reputation. So at the Second Battle of Oporto on the 12th of May, 1809, um, he launches this really bold attack across a river. It's quite, it's almost sort of slightly reckless what he does here. That's an opinion that will make me quite unpopular in certain circles. But effectively, the the French have pulled back behind this river. They've either destroyed all the boats or they've taken them all to the north side of the river where they're based. Um, And the idea is, well, what are the British going to do? They can't cross a river that we're either defending the crossing points of or we've we've taken um, taken all of the means of transportation. But some exploring officers managed to get hold of some wine barges and Wellesley just says, yeah, go for it. They cross over the river. They um, establish themselves in a seminary on the north side and then use that as a point from which to try and cut the French off. It almost works, but the French do the equivalent of what the British had to do during the Corinna campaign. They drop everything, including their artillery, and run north uh, towards Galathea. Um it's, it's a pretty remarkable victory. But Wellesley's not done there. He then heads into Spain. And this is where the problems really start to emerge because the Spanish... In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. 
I want to say nice things about the Spanish at this point, but it's, it's quite hard. <laughs> Wellesley's working with a guy called Cuesta, who's very kind of full of his own reputation. Um, there have been some promises that the Spanish are going to supply the British army when they get into Spain. And the reality is that they can't supply their own men. So they sure as hell can't supply the British. But nobody knows that at the point at which this agreement is made. They fight at the Battle of Talavera, where the Spanish get frightened by their own gunfire and run away. Yes, you did hear that right. The, they fire on um, a French cavalry patrol and the noise of their volley basically unsettles the men and a whole bunch of them um, run off and start looting the British baggage train. It's um, pretty appalling. But nonetheless, Wellesley does win at Talavera. But you've got to bear in mind that he's one guy with one army and the French have multiple armies in the region. And one of those armies is descending, trying to uh, cut off his lines of communication with Portugal. So he has to pull back to the Portuguese border. And then we have a situation where there's a stalemate because Wellesley knows he can't go back into Spain until he's absolutely got a really firm base behind him Mm. within Portugal from which he can then strike outwards. But that takes time to build and there's nothing really that he can do in the meantime. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, how long is the stalemate? The stalemate lasts all the way from 1809, I would argue, until 1812. So it's a long old thing. Um, And the French aren't idle during that period. So in 1810, they reinvade. This is the third French invasion since 1807. They are desperate to kind of crack this nut. And this time the French really try to do it properly. They put together an army of about 100,000 men under a guy called Marshal Messena. Now, Messena is not a Mura. He's not one of these people, oh, yeah, we'll just go for it and whatever. But the trouble with Messena is that he's quite elderly by this point, and he doesn't really want, or he doesn't seem to want to be involved in this one. Um, nonetheless, they do a kind of a methodical approach. They take uh, one of the border fortresses on the Spanish side, a place called Theodad Rodrigo, which we'll come back to in a bit because it's significant uh, later on in the story. They then take Almeida far quicker than anybody anticipated because a freak shell basically lands in the magazine and blows the place sky high. Um, And then it all kind of falls apart for the French. So they they think it's all going really well. They keep pushing the British back. Wellington tries to carry out this sort of scorched earth policy. Um, And then they get to a place called Basako. If you ever look at Basako Ridge from the valley floor, 
you wonder what the bloody hell Masena was smoking to think that it was a good idea to attack that position. Mm. Um, because it's, it's just sheer. It's a horrific place to attack. When the news arrives at Masena's headquarters that the British have stopped and they seem to be making a stand to maybe defend the position on this ridge, which incidentally, Wellesley is, well, he's Wellington by this point after Talavera. He's not expecting the French to attack. Um, how can I put this nicely? Masena is otherwise occupied um, in his bedroom with his mistress to the point that the report on the fact that the British have, have stopped is delivered through the bedroom door. The, the guy literally stands on one side and says, look, this is the situation. <laughs> so, the French um, thing ever, but yeah, continue. Yeah, let's, let's move rapidly on. Um, so there's a battle at Basako, and this is where the uh, French get one of the nasty shocks of the campaign. There are two of them uh, over the course of this one. One is that the Portuguese army suddenly isn't crap anymore. The reason being that from the moment that Wellesley had landed in Portugal, he'd worked on this. And basically the entire Portuguese army is completely retrained along British lines. British officers are brought in to command some of these units. The head of the Portuguese army is a guy called Marshall Beresford, who's British. You get British training manuals being translated into Portuguese, and it's paid for by the British. And in some cases, the weapons they use are British. So it's a complete restructuring and basically a sort of proxy British force, but staffed predominantly by Portuguese guys. And it works. They do ridiculously well. And that's part of the reason I think why Wellesley Wellington fights at Basako. He is using that as an opportunity to give the Portuguese troops some confidence and prove their ability. But Basako isn't actually a perfect position because it can be outflanked quite easily. And this is the head scratcher about why Masena decided to attack there at all. The reason probably being that he just wanted, he thought he could, you know, break the British and then it'd be job done campaign over. Um, that doesn't happen. The British and Portuguese win. They pull back then to the second surprise they've been working on, which they've been working on for almost a year. And these are a series of fortifications called the lines of Torres Vedras. Um, if you want a modern comparison, think Maginot line, but actually works. That's the kind of scale that we're talking about here. A whole, in fact, multiple lines of fortifications that use the um, kind of mountainous hilly landscape north of Lisbon as a natural defence and then make it even worse. So they um, sharpen the inclines, they dam rivers to flood valleys and basically make this whole area completely impassable. Masena takes one look at them and goes, what the bloody hell am I meant to do about that? Because there's been a complete catastrophic intelligence breakdown for the French. They know the British are building some forts. They've got no idea the scale of what they're facing. Um, and Masena basically does what any middle management person does. He kicks the problem upstairs and goes to Napoleon, um, the hell am I meant to do about this? Do you want to send me more men? Do you want to have some thoughts on how to solve this problem? Um, and it, ultimately, there's nothing the French can do. They have to pull back out of Spain, uh, sorry, out of Portugal towards the um, Spanish border. Wellington follows them, then um, besieges Almeida to retake it, um, fights a battle called the Frente Don Euro, where he's very nearly given his 
has his ass handed to him, quite frankly. It's the closest Wellington ever gets to being ripped apart on the battlefield. He overextends one of his flanks and Masena goes, yeah, I'm going to teach you how to fight a proper battle. Um, but Wellington's effectively saved by the sheer discipline of his men. Um, as that's happening, there's a, a second battle uh, further to south. So both of these happen in, in May. Uh, the second battle to the south is Albuera, which is almost a defeat. Um, Marshal Beresford's in command there um, and it, it goes horribly badly. He occupies the wrong position, then tries to move to the right position whilst the French are on the offensive. Um, some units are surprised by French cavalry. One unit, uh, the 57th, gets a reputation and a name as the Diehards. Nothing to do with the 1980s film starring John McClane. It's because they, they, they're advancing in line against cavalry, which if you know anything about the tactics of the period, you know you do not do. Um, they get torn apart by lancers, um, but they just about manage to hold the French off. The guy who's com- in command at Elbrough, the French guy in command, says the British were beaten, but they just refused to accept it. And it's that kind of hardiness and that determination that sees them through. Where do we go from here? Well, you've got a deadlock to break. Yeah. Um, because, and the reason you've got this deadlock is because of the fortresses on the Spanish-Portuguese border. So on so the Portuguese side... is this where side, we get, like, Ciudad Rodrigo? Yeah. Okay. Have you been, like, paying attention to my Napoleonicist podcasty wafflings? Almost. Almost. Um, yeah, this, this is exactly where we get Ciudad Rodrigo and Badajoz. Um, I've just done that thing of going, here's the Spanish pronunciation and I'm going to be hip and um, millennial and, and use the, the Spanish pronunciation. Sorry. Um, but yeah, so you've got port- the, the fortress on the, the Spanish-Portuguese border. On the Portuguese side, you've got Almeida and um, Elvash. On the Spanish side, you've got Theodor Rodrigo and Badajoz. And Effectively, 1811 becomes this story of trying to take those fortresses and absolutely failing. And then Wellington spends the winter going, right, we need to reset, replan and do this thing properly. And that's exactly what happens in early January, an 11 day siege. The British and Portuguese take Theodore Rodrigo. It's so fast that the news has barely reached uh, French high command before the place has fallen um it's it's incredible how quickly that's pulled off there's plundering in the aftermath we've talked about this on the the plundering episode um and then he moves on to Badajoz in April that's a much tougher kind of nut to crack that takes three weeks um they lose about 4,000 men in the process there's 48 hours of shit anarchy where the British and the Portuguese basically pillage murder and rape their way through the town it's absolutely horrific nobody's punished for it which is something that we conveniently choose to forget. Um, Boris Wellington... Johnson in charge of this by any chance? No, no, it's it's all on Wellington, this one. Um, there are lots of reasons for why, partly because the army's lost 4,000 men and they kind of have that horror to deal with. And if you start stringing up more of your men just, as after, just after they've taken a city in those kind of circumstances, you're going to have massive mutiny problems They've not been paid either, have they? The pay is an ongoing problem. So they're usually about six months behind. Um, And when it comes to their rations, they're not um, 
they're not getting the nutritional kind of content that they need out of their rations, but half the time they're not even getting those rations. So there, there are all kinds of reasons why there's this culture of plunder in the army. Anyway, there's also this idea that if you are on a battlefield and you kill somebody, you're perfectly entitled to run your hands through their pockets and take whatever stuff they've got on them because with the best one in the world, they don't need it anymore. Um, so all of that kind of comes together in Badahoff. Wellington weeps in the breaches, actually, when he sees the scale of the dead. He takes one look at it and he bursts into tears. And here's uh, one of his junior commanders, a guy called Picton, who commands one of the divisions, um, kind of goes, what's the hell wrong with you? He thinks that Wellington's wounded. He can't understand it. But then Picton's a, an interesting um, character of, of his own. So with that what Wellington has done is taken these fortresses, which are known as the keys to Spain, because they guard the two main routes into the heart of the country. And that's where we get Salamanca. Salamanca campaign in uh, July of 1812 culminates in the Battle of Salamanca on the 22nd of July. And it's been described as the defeat of 40,000 men in 40 minutes, which is a bit of an exaggeration. But effectively, the guy who's commanding the French force has done an incredible job all the way through the campaign. He's basically managing to outflank the British without firing a single shot. Everybody loves to hate Marmont, the, the commander, um, mainly because he surrendered Paris to the Allies in 1814 when he realised that the war was over and everyone thinks, no, he should have fought on and just wasted his men's lives. Um, but Marmont's not brainless. He's done this great job. The armies have been marching in incredibly close proximity about a kilometre apart, almost in, within cannon shot at some points, for about a week. But he makes this small mistake. Two French divisions end up marching a little bit too far, a little bit too fast. Wellington sees this and just turns into an animal, just strikes almost kind of with viper-like reflexes, um, sends in two divisions to take out the two that have um, marched too fast, then sweeps in with the cavalry, the cavalry being cavalry gets carried away. It's what the British cavalry love to do. We see it at Waterloo. We see it at Talabira. We see it here at Salamanca. Um, and the, the French army is basically then rolled up in detail. Um, you then see that whole thing fall apart because then Wellington's in the centre of Spain. There are a quarter of a million men wrapped around him, in effect. To the south, you've got an army uh, in Andalusia, to the north, you've got another army. So you, to the east, there's there's another one. Um, and Wellington's in Madrid, and he doesn't really know what the hell to do, because whichever direction he strikes, somebody else is going to come along and kick him in the arse. Um, and that's basically the story of the rest of the 1812 campaign. He lays siege to Burgos, doesn't take it. Um, and then as the, the other, the net starts to close, and all of these armies start to combine against him, um, he has to cut and run back to the Portuguese border. It's interesting. And this gives you a sense of how much of a psychological ascendancy Wellington has by this point. He stands at the same ground that he fought Salamanca in um, when he gets back there in November and offers the French the opportunity to fight. It's basically him going, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. The French have double the number of troops that Wellington has with him by that point, and they don't attack him. They, they just don't want to attack him on ground of his choosing. They're getting used to this idea that you've got to treat this guy with a lot of caution. And so by 1812, they're, they're back where they started. But that doesn't mean that Salamanca's wasted because of that psychological ascendancy that I just talked about. But also they've liberated Madrid. So the French only briefly reoccupy the city 
um, before giving it up as a bad cause. And what Wellington has effectively managed to do is get these French armies to start to give up their control of the rest of the country. What were the indications that Wellington would be this good against a power like the French? Because Napoleon's quite enjoyed stomping all over everybody, hasn't he? He really has. There's no... I mean, I wouldn't use the word genius when it comes to Wellington. He's methodical. He's the ultimate micromanager. He's got this incredible capacity for the little details. There are times when he's writing letters to people talking about the proportion of corn that needs to go into horses' feed and, you know, don't give them freshly cut grass um, because that will upset their stomachs and then we'll have massive issues. And these are these are low-level issues that he's basically writing to people and saying, no, you need to do this, you need to do X and Y. Um, is there any indication that he's going to be this good? I mean, he's done very well in India, um, but then you've got to bear in mind attitudes at the time. They sort of go, well, yeah, it's India. Um, but there's some respect for some of the, the forces in India, but there's not vast amounts of respect. So I wouldn't say it comes completely out of the blue, but this is a guy who not only can do the, the big kind of battlefield thing, he's also got that even bigger picture of how to keep your army going on campaign. And you put the two together and he's, I mean, the only person who's on a par with him is Napoleon. And we could sit here and argue all day about which is better. I mean, I don't think you get another one like this till Kitchener, do you? Not as far as I can... <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of mixing the bureaucratic with the actual campaigning. And then I guess, like, I think Maud was another one, but obviously cholera got him in 1917 in Baghdad. But again, with the micromanaging. Uh, so what happens next? So then you get to 1813. Mm. Um, the British Army kind of shakes itself down uh, well let's call it the let's be fair the allied army because it's a you've got a few spanish troops attached to it by this point wellington is commander-in-chief of all of the spanish armies um by this point he's made generalissimo by the spanish um which creates just <laughs> the ultimate kind of shit-stirring fest amongst the spanish generals because they hate the fact that this foreign has been brought in made supreme commander of them um, so Wellington's got that massive diplomatic headache of trying to keep these guys in check and they're really not interested. But with the Portuguese, with the British, with the Spanish, he can, again, kind of hit reset and start to think, how does he solve this problem? Because he knows if he goes into the centre of the country again, there's a good chance that either the French are going to do what they did in 1812 or they're going to have learnt and they're going to have prepared because the French aren't dumb. And this is one of those things that I think gets lost we kind of think, well, the French were stupid and they just ran away and they really didn't. Um, so the French are preparing defensive lines because they think there's only one route that Wellington can really take. But Wellington, he's big on the little details. So he starts to think, well, let's have a look at some of these routes that could be used to outflank these positions. And he basically takes a series of paths that the French aren't expecting. He throws a dummy, so he stays with uh, one contingent of his force that does the dumb, obvious thing of advancing to Salamanca sends the vast majority on this kind of arcing manoeuvre that completely outflanks the French. They have to pull back to a place called Vittoria, um, where they try and stand and fight. They're not particularly keen on this because their army has been whittled away by the fact that Napoleon's invasion of Russia has gone disastrously wrong. So he's pulled a whole chunk of troops out of Spain um, to reform an army and they lose at Vittoria 
Wellington attacks in four separate locations across a river. Um, so something about rivers and Wellington wanting to go on the offensive. Um, I think the French think they're safe behind them and they're really, really not. He's not entirely happy with um, the outcome of Vittoria. few reasons for that. Um, one is that he doesn't manage to encircle the French like he wants to. He wants this crushing victory. He wants to you know, encircle them, surround them, force them to surrender, completely remove French power from the country. He never gets that. And that's one of the reasons why you could realistically say, well, Napoleon on his best day is better than Wellington on his best day, because Napoleon does manage to just wipe out entire armies on occasion. Also in the aftermath of Vittoria, you've got plundering. So the French have gathered up all of their loot, and it's a lot of loot, um, in a baggage train at Vittoria. Now, when they lose, they cut and run. So they don't take the baggage with them. Now, the British, as we've been discussing, do love shiny stuff. We're like magpies. And so the troops plunder the baggage train. This isn't, though, why he calls his men the scum of the earth. Let me just go on a little rant here for a moment. Apologies, <laughs> listeners. Um, but everybody goes, well, he calls his, scum of, his men the scum of the earth because they plunder the baggage train. No, they bloody don't. Go and check your facts. Go and read a proper history book and go and look at the dates. He sends he that constantly letter. refers to his men as scummy, doesn't he? Oh, he does. He does it four times. He believes it. That's not the issue. Um, the point is that everybody goes, why well, it's because they planted the baggage train. No. He writes that letter, and I'll quote you the letter. He says, it is quite impossible for me or any other man to command a British army under the existing system. We have in the service the scum of the earth as common soldiers. No idea if he spoke like that, but in my head, that's what he sounds like. Um, <laughs> Brilliant. I'm going to make you talk like that always from now on. <laughs> Every time I quote Wellington, I've got to use that voice now. Um, yeah, he sends that letter on in, in July. Now, Victoria's fought on the 21st of June. It doesn't take Wellington nearly a fortnight to get angry about the loss of a baggage train. That's not what happens. What actually happens is that some of those troops that were involved in the plundering of the baggage train don't go back to their units. Mm. They stay in the hills and then they start harassing the locals. And so one of the officials in Victoria writes a letter of complaint saying, look, can you do something about this? We're a bit tired of being mugged by British soldiers. And that's the point at which Wellington loses his rag. It's not about the baggage train. So people, get it right, please, please. I beg you. Just, Thank just, you. Just, Read a book. Read, read a pigging book. <laughs> uh, so you did mention that there are not just British soldiers, this is an allied force in that. You mentioned a, you mentioned earlier on the guerrillas. Well, are, are they still just running around mugging people as well? Or have they, what have they been doing? So some of the guerrillas, yeah, have just been mugging people and kicking their heads in. Um, others have been really important the whole way through this, particularly from an intelligence perspective. The French end up with this massive problem of communication because they don't control the countryside. They can control the cities, that's fine, because you've got people concentrated, you can concentrate your forces, you can keep people under control. But in the countryside, you've got these bands that are roaming, and they know the places to launch ambushes. So if you want to send a message from Madrid to Salamanca, for the French, you've got to take a whole regiment of cavalry and send that along with the message in order to protect that messenger. And if you don't, the odds are those messages are going to end up being taken. The British then get some of those messages fed back to them by the guerrillas because it's intelligence. The, the guerrillas can't do anything meaningful with that information, but they know the British can. And so what you have is a situation where, sure, 
these letters are in code, but we have a guy called Scoville, a British officer, George Scoville, who ends up breaking Napoleon's code. I mean, again, if you want like a Second World War comparison, think Enigma. It wasn't as robust as Enigma, but nonetheless, it was meant to be this great code and it gets broken. Um, And quite often what you have is a situation where the French will send five or six messages, versions of the same message, in the hope that one of them will get through. And actually all of them end up in British hands. They land on Wellington's desk. That's the scale of how effective the guerrillas are at keeping the French from A, communicating, B, from taking control of the country. And to be brutally honest, if it wasn't for the guerrillas, the British would have been kicked out much, much earlier than than 1812. But equally, if it hadn't been for the British force on the Iberian Peninsula, then the guerrillas would have been mopped up. They wouldn't have had the weapons that kept getting supplied to them, the odd um, bit of money that gets handed to them. Um, they wouldn't have had those kinds of supplies to keep going. So it's a kind of a mutually beneficial process. But yeah, the Spanish are, are crucial, as are the Portuguese. You know, the, the Portuguese force is not to be sniffed at. The, some of the troops do kind of get sniffy-nosed about them and go, oh, well, they're cowardly brutes and they've never been known to perform a gallant act. Um, others who actually fight alongside them go, well, actually, you know, these Portuguese boys, they're, they're tough nuts. Um, they will, I mean, one guy says they fight like tigers. And on balance, if you look at their, their record in the battlefield, they probably don't break in any situation other than situations where the British troops would have broken. So this is a coalition effort. I mean, the whole war against Napoleon is a coalition effort. Think about what happens in 1813 and 14. It's coalition allies that come together and overwhelm the French by sheer weight of numbers. Same story at Waterloo, as we were discussing when we filmed out there. You know, so it's not a case of, you know, Royal Britannia and if it hadn't been for the British, then none of this would have happened. It's a kind of a symbiotic, let's use a a fancy word rather than uh, all of this dumbing down that I do love to do. Uh, (laughs) It's a symbiotic relationship that we have. I have to ask you, how does it all end? I mean, do do we have to go forward to Waterloo? But how does it all end on the peninsula? Yeah, no, we don't need to take it to Waterloo. I mean, that's a story in its own right. And people can watch the documentary when it comes out. That's the sequel, Um, right? But genuinely, that is the sequel. That's that's the bad kind of, you know, when bands kind of get back together and, and do that comeback tour. Waterloo is the really kind of cringy comeback tour for Napoleon. It does all end in, in 1814. Um, it's not the British that forced Napoleon to abdicate. What you have is a situation where the Allies collectively, because by this point you've got the Russians, the Prussians, the Austrians, all coming together in Central Europe to defeat Napoleon there. And Wellington is applying the pressure to the south. So you have this kind of two-front war situation going on for Napoleon. He, he actually refers to Spain as the, his Spanish ulcer because it bleeds him of men and resources that he could have used elsewhere. So he acknowledges himself, you know, Spain was a big mistake for him. He balls it up monumentally there. Um, what's actually happening there? Well, post-Victoria, the French basically have to give up on Spain. They leave two garrisons in the country, one at a place called San Sebastian, the other at Pamploma. Uh, There are a series of battles across the Pyrenees, Uh, particularly in July. You have something that's actually imaginatively named the Battle of the Pyrenees. I'm sure somebody took ages to think of that name, but it's a series of uh, battles, actually, um, where the French try and push back south. So they get a new commander, a guy called Sewell, um, who 
it's good you know again i'm not going to sit here and say all the french were all dumb murat dumb Saul not dumb um and he he manages to push the british back briefly because they're strung out um and then you know the british do what they've always done they they regroup they counterattack, and within a few days this effort to kind of push back south into spain is in full retreat um, the British and Portuguese and Spanish forces are the first to set foot on French soil. They do so in uh, December. They start to push into France at the Battle of the Neve, but they don't push particularly far. A um, few reasons for that. One is that Nap- <laughs> Wellington doesn't want to trigger Napoleon. He knows that it's bad enough that he's on French soil, and that's a humiliation for Napoleon. But he also knows that the other allies in Northern Europe aren't close enough. He doesn't want Napoleon to descend on him, send him packing to then march back north and and deal with the other allies. So he's a bit tentative initially. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, you could draw Second World War comparisons if you really, really wanted to um, about this kind of two-front war and we don't want to push it too soon and all the rest of it. Um, the, (laughs) The other problem that Wellington has is he doesn't want a guerrilla war. He doesn't want the French to do to him what the Spanish have done to the French in Spain. And the Spanish want revenge. So when he's got Spanish troops with him, they want to exact their revenge. And he has to send an entire division of Spanish troops home because they're not obeying his orders. And his orders are, you don't bloody touch the locals. And if you do touch the locals, I'll have you. Not in quite those those terms. Again, I'm paraphrasing and dumbing things down. Um, But rather than have those Spanish troops with him and risk a counterinsurgency in France, he sends them packing. And the French are astonished by this. They they just can't get their heads around the fact that this invading force is treating them with respect and they're paying for their food. And they're generally kind of being nice to them and the troops aren't allowed to be heavy handed. Um, So much so that when, when Wellington marches into one area, all of the, the French central control breaks down, but the local officials still need things like their accounts approved. And so they're sending things for Wellington to sign going, look, we can't send them to Paris because we haven't got the communication with Paris, but we need to conduct our business. Can you sign them for us, please? And Wellington's there going, the hell do you want me to sign these for? Because he's got no authority to do that. So it gives you a sense of how the French are actually quite pleasantly surprised by what lands on their doorstep certainly in the in the south of france you have a one last battle at toulouse in april 1814 it's a bit of a uh what how would we describe it on history hack it's i mean it doesn't go well yeah let's store it then let's go with clusterfuck um two reasons for that one um some spanish troops who have stayed with the army just run away um they they are heavily attacked they're sent into a a, attacker a force and they break uh, as they're trying to do it and wellington being wellington turns around and says damn me i never saw ten thousand men run a race before because he does like his his sarky little comebacks um but yeah another force is kind of sent on this really awkward march march um in an area that borders boggy ground and then they have to kind of outflank these forces and they're being hit with flanking fire the whole time um they lose more men than the French do, but the French pull out overnight. So you've got that endless debate about is it a strategic victory, is it a tactical loss, and, and so on and so forth. Um, 
really the best you can say of it is it's sort of a draw and then the French give up the ghost the next day. But it's a complete waste of time because Napoleon has abdicated a few days earlier, but the news didn't reach Toulouse in time. Completely pointless battle. Um, Napoleon, as, as I say, abdicates. He's exiled to Elba. Um, and the rest, as they say, is history. That is the peninsula war done and dusted. But it, as you said earlier, you know, it's not quite the end of the Napoleonic Wars. We get that sad little coda in the form of Waterloo. We do indeed. Zach, this has been brilliant. Thank you for an overview of the Peninsula Wars, uh, which I, obviously I'd heard all the names in that, but had no idea how they fitted together. So uh, it's been wonderful. Thank you. That's right. I hope I didn't dumb it down too much. Yeah. <laughs> in case you hadn't noticed, Zach has been accused of being one of those historians on social media that just dumps shit down. And it's a disappointment to academia. Oh, did you cry? I'm such a disappointment. I, th- I think I'm just going to have to go and, and cry into my gin and tonic. Go and stand um, in the corner. Exactly. With the gin and tonic. Absolutely. The gin and tonic is key. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.